This week, or last week, I was asked to write a little clip in the newspaper about the election, and that kind of spurred some thoughts in my mind and, and about things. I am, I am not a political person. I watch the news and listen to the news and all that, but as far as being a pastor, I stay out of politics. And so tonight, I'll, I, I, this is as close as I'm ever going to come, okay? Um, because uh, I believe we are a kingdom on this earth, and we're not of the kingdom of this world. And, and, and I don't care, and just personally, don't care about what happens in man's kingdom. I believe I'm a part of God's kingdom, and we have a different set of rules, different set of boundaries, a different set of economics, a different little bit of, a different set of power. Uh, and so tonight I want to talk to you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19. And uh, this is the stories with spirit, and we're going to talk about Paul in Ephesus tonight. Then I'm going to kind of go off on a few little tangents as you stay with me a little bit. But here's this. Let me give you the story uh, here a little bit about Paul in Ephesus and the book of Acts. So the apostle Paul has become a mighty man of God, uh, changed, radically transformed from Pharisee to apostle. You can learn more about his story earlier in the book. But Paul comes to Ephesus, okay, and he finds some disciples. And some of these disciples, there's a church in Ephesus already established, but he finds on the way there, he finds some disciples who had only heard about John the Baptist's baptism. And they'd only heard about that Jesus was coming, and they hadn't heard that Jesus had come, and they haven't heard that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. So Paul comes to these guys, and he says, haven't you heard? Uh, that Jesus is alive, He's well, He's sent His Holy Spirit. And they said, no, we've only heard about John the Baptist and the baptism of repentance in the Jordan River. And we, we kind of were with that and we're a part of this movement. And, and so they're disciples. They're, they're called disciples. And they, they believe the Messiah was coming. They're ready. But they hadn't gone all in yet. So Paul pulls them aside and says, hey, here's the story of the gospel. Here's Jesus. Here's the baptism of the Spirit. has been poured out. He lays His hands on them. Boom, they filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance, and they prophesied. And so he takes these 12 guys, and he goes into Ephesus with them. And they go to the church that was kind of already started by other Christians. And they begin to work for three months talking to the Jews in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was uh, in Jerusalem. You had the temple. But in other towns way far away when you couldn't go to uh, the temple, they had synagogues where they would go on Saturdays and teach the Word of God, the Old Testament, uh, and the Jews would talk. And it just have church, basically, for Jews. And so Paul goes there. As a Jew, he has rights to preach. He's an ex-Pharisee. He's a good guy. And so they allow him to expound on what he believes is the Word for today. For three months, he preaches to these people, but he never makes any dent uh, in converting them. They were so hard uh, of their own knowledge and rejecting the gospel and their traditions of Judaism that he says, okay, fine. Guys, he get, takes his 12 spirit-filled guys now on fire for Jesus, ready to take on the world. And they go into the center of Ephesus and they rent a lecture hall uh, during the day. Now, in uh, those cultures, they had kind of... If you're, if you're, we don't, Miss Mary's here from Mexico, but, you know, in other countries they have siestas, right? In the middle of the day, after lunch, some businesses, they'll close for a little bit. You go home, take a nap. Don't you wish they did that in America today? That'd just be wonderful, you know? Uh, So they did that back then, and during this time, during the break, uh, Paul would rent this lecture hall out. He worked as a... uh, 
uh, leather worker, a tent maker, he would pay and the church would support them to rent out this popular lecture hall, this school uh, where people often come, kind of a marketplace thing. And every day for, for the next several years, for two years, they begin to teach the Word of God every single day. Isn't that kind of creative? That'd be like, you know, let's rent out one of the local businesses in town if we didn't have churches and begin to do that. So for two years, they preach in that lecture hall in order to establish a home base of churches to then send out to the rest of the world because Ephesus was the third largest Roman city in the world, okay? And in inside Ephesus, it was a huge trade center. And then inside Ephesus also, there was the temple of Artemis or Diana, was a popular Greek and Roman god. She was a god of fertility, uh, a, a sexualized god. Uh, she was a god of virginity and all this kind of stuff. And so immoral stuff going on here. But it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Had like 127 pillars, gold, and, and there were some of the most famous Greek paintings and sculptures in it. And this was something that even uh, ancients wrote about and said, well, I saw this temple and that temple, but when I saw the temple in Ephesus, it was like a beauty unlike any other. One of the seven wonders of the world. This is huge. People coming from miles and miles away, countries, just to come see this thing. And they would come, you know, like when you go to the um, Eiffel Tower today, or you go to the Statue of Liberty, what do you get? You get a little bitty miniature Statue of Liberty or Eiffel Tower that says you've been there. Well, when you would go there, that's what you'd buy in the, in the little market. You'd buy one of those little silver, uh, sterling silver uh, images of that, little, of that goddess or the temple itself. And so Paul is there. This is where they are. It's a little bitty church in one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. And they begin to preach the gospel. And they begin to make disciples in order to send them out on the trade routes from Ephesus. Because if you were in Ephesus, if you would reach Ephesus, you could reach the entire part of Asia that they were in. Okay? And so it was strategic. And it was spirit-led. And so despite being, though, in this great pagan city, Paul... Uh, was beginning to be used by God to see some incredible things, some miracles that never had been seen before, some unusual miracles, they even said. They wrote, Luke, when he wrote, he said this was something unusual, didn't always happen. When Paul would preach, he had one of those, uh, he grew up in old-time Pentecost. Your pastors had those sweat rags, anybody? And we would wave those things and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Paul had that. They would be taking those, they would be taking it home to sick people who couldn't be there or demon-possessed people who couldn't be there, and they began being healed. They just laid their hands on that, slept on that or whatever, and demons would flee and people would be healed. And it was unusual. God began doing amazing things. And so the church began to grow and excitement began to happen. This little bitty church, this huge pagan city, right? Metropolitan, be like New York today, okay? And little bitty church, the only Christians in the entire city, just this little bitty church. Start out with 12 spirit-filled guys, Paul, and a few others. All right? And so they begin to do this, seeing people's heal delivered. Uh, and then some Jews, some Jewish exorcists, seeing that Paul was doing something, kind of this little church over here on the hill, what's going on over here? They said, wow, they're, they're, cast, they're seeing demons cast out. We don't do that all the time. So the Jew, some Jewish guys, some, they call them the sons of Sceva, tried to say, hey, to some demons, because of Paul's authority and this guy named Jesus, we cast you out. What happened? Demons jumped all over those guys, beat them up, and scared them out. And because of that, man, the town went crazy. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear that this thing happened? And then that guy, the demon even talked about, he knew, he knew Paul and he knew Jesus, but they didn't know these Jewish exorcist guys, and they beat those guys up and ran them out of town. So, man, 
it's like, you know, in Gina, you, somebody tells one thing and, it, man, it's, you're gone. Nobody knows what happened. It's just made it to the end of the, end of the town. And so it just began to, to go. All right? Word of mouth began to spread. All right? And so much so that that little church began to spread the, Lord, the Word of the Lord and it began to multiply, okay? And because Jesus was being magnified and many believed and they kept coming and they confessing. And so they said, wow, this, this guy has got stuff to cast out demons. So all these people who have been dealing with all this sorcery stuff began coming to this little church, uh, into this lecture hall, and began to give up all this pagan stuff. So much so that it was about $10,000 worth of stuff they burned. 50,000 pieces of sterling silver worth that they burned of books and magical spells and incantations and stuff. And so the pagan people were just saying, wow, your God is more powerful. Your God is greater. And so they began giving it up. Well, that didn't set too well. Even though the word of God was prevailing in Ephesus and Paul's like, okay, we're ready to go out. We're about to send some people out. I'm going to go to another town. Big problem happened. A man named Demetrius was one of the silversmiths in the town and the city who made the little shrines of that goddess. And he got to started losing business. I don't know if several of his clients or a lot of his people started saying, well, yeah, let's go to the temple. But you know what? I hear something over here in this lecture hall. Let's go check it out. And a lot of these pagan people who were a lot of his distributors, maybe they, they were selling his work. They began closing down and going to Paul's church during the day. And so he says, well, I'm losing business. So here's what he does. In fear that it would spread, he begins to start some rumors about that little church. And so he goes over to his other silversmith guys. He says, hey, guys, I've been losing business. You guys, well, I lost a little bit. He's like, well, hey, well, what if this keeps going? You know, uh, me and my family, it's me now, but what if it's your family next? And they say, oh, I don't know about that. And so the fear began to spread and the rumors and the gossip began to spread and the slander began to spread. And so they arose a riot from this union of uh, trade workers, of silversmiths. And so they take two of Paul's disciples and they spread this gospel, this gossip and slander and fear around the whole town and saying, well, it could be the temple next. They could shut the temple down uh, if they're doing this. So it went from one little tradesmith not having some work to what about the union getting out of work? And what about the temple, this great temple that makes our city so great, that brings all this money in and brings all these people? We're one of the seven wonders of the world. And then what if the goddess gets mad at us? And so all this panic ensued, and they took two disciples, rushed to the amphitheater in town, which was a very popular gladiator place where they had lions that they would let out and, and kill people. And they took them to this arena. And they began to, uh, you know, like today, you see the things on the news. Nobody in those riots really knows what's going on. They just say, hey, there's a crowd. Let's just run after it. And all these people having no clue what was going on. Thousands of people showed up. And there was just angry mob mentality. Okay, so they got two of his disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Starkus, and they took them to this outdoor theater. And Paul rushes and hears it. Oh, my gosh. Leaves that place, rushes to the theater. But the, the, his uh, disciples like, no, 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 you can't go in there because they will for sure kill you. So they're holding Paul back, keeping him from going in. And they said, okay, let's just see what happens. And so uh, the town council, the clerk is there. And for two hours, these people begin just to chant only this. Great is the goddess Diana, or great uh, is Artemis of the Ephesians. The same name, Artemis and, and Diana. Uh, but great is our God, basically, of Ephesus. 
And so what happens is God moves upon the town clerk because Rome had a very strict policy about no riots. If they had a riot, the Roman army would come in there. They didn't care who was at fault. They would just start arresting and hurting people. So the town clerk comes in panicking. He says, okay, hold on. If these guys really did do something, I don't think they did. I don't see that they're guilty of anything. But if they did, then you, Demetrius, and your little guild need to go take them to court because if Rome comes in here, it's going to be bad news for all of us. And so he dismissed the whole thing. And that's the story of how a little church in a big city made a big difference. Okay? What I want you to get, though, out of that is that here we are years later, 2,000 years later almost, and while uh, that temple today is completely destroyed over... Of all the 121 columns, only one half of a column still remains today of that great temple. But this letter to his church in Ephesus has gone around the world ten times over. People have been saved, healed, delivered. And tonight, in 2016, you're still hearing of the story of a little church in a big city. Ain't nobody selling no idols no more over there. There ain't even a town called Ephesus over there anymore. It's a whole bunch of ruins. There can be lasting impact when a small group of people get serious about Jesus. There can be worldwide change, history-making change, when the church rises up to be the church. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world today. Doesn't matter if we're located in Gina, Louisiana or New York City, Times Square. When the people of God be the people of God, the gates of hell, it says, shall not prevail. And so tonight, I just want to kind of take some thoughts off of this about how do we have the gospel in a godless culture? You know, the gospel's never relied on man's effort. It's never relied on man's kingdom to succeed. It's never relied on a declaration of independence. It's never relied on a constitution written by great men, no doubt. It's never relied on a president or a Supreme Court. The gospel has never relied on a ballot box. The gospel has always relied on the power of God, Jehovah, on high. The gospel has gone around the world in hostile territories, decade after decade, age after age, generation after generation, in dictators, in communist countries, and in democratic countries. And in every case, it always wins the hearts and minds of people who are hungry and broken and willing to receive it. And in every case, it gives eternal life to those who are willing it. And so here we have spirit-filled individuals who were bold and courageous to preach, even when it wasn't popular, even when it cost them almost their lives, and even when it uh, did, wasn't popular or political in their town. And I look at these 12 guys, really, who were there at the beginning. And let's focus on them for a second, because there was 12 guys who were called disciples, but they hadn't really gone all in yet. That's kind of what we talked about this morning in a lot of ways. They were disciples, but Paul says, you're lacking something. You need a true revelation of who Jesus is, that he's alive and well today. And then you need to know that he left the power of the Holy Spirit for you to do something amazing to do the gospel mission that he's called you to. And it was when he baptized these people, or the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't baptize anybody, Jesus baptized them in the Holy Spirit, that they come and they become a radical movement in a huge, huge city. Twelve people, plus Paul and a few others that are unnamed, began to affect citywide change in the third largest city 
in the world. We're one of the seven wonders of the world to make an impact in a national worldwide way. One little church. Think about it. We think about, well, what, what can Sanctuary Family Worship Center really do in the political scene of the um, United States of America? You know, we don't I mean, we kind of we don't really think about that we can really affect change in our culture, in our schools. You know, in, in West Virginia and, and the Carolinas right now, there's a revival going on among young people. That schools are coming together across counties and that kids are just coming to the Lord by thousands. You don't see that on the news. Look it up. The gospel in a godless culture, the change was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And God began to use, move unusually. They got creative. They... They began to meet in a non-churchy kind of way. They met at 2 in the afternoon in a storefront building. They began to get strategic about saying, hey, we've got to make disciples. The reason we're meeting is to get more people to send them out on the trade routes that we have. So there's creative strategy. They said, well, we believe in the presence of God and He does some weird things and we don't understand it and it's not us making it up and we're not starting weird doctrine, but hey, God started healing people. It's just not us. It's a sovereign move of God. And so they're open to it. They believed in it. And so the gospel works. And I think about Paul. You could almost say that they were so involved in the gospel mission in the kingdom of God that he had a dripping anointing. It's as if they would wipe, you know, like just the anointing was just falling off of him that they take these rags, wipe his face and and they'd go out and people get healed just because it wasn't really anything special about the rag. It wasn't anything special about the sweat off his brow. It wasn't him. It was the faith that they believed that there's something more. There's something more. You know, I'm, you could take this shirt or, you know, the podium and put it anywhere else. It's not those things. It's not these things. They're not anything. It's the faith to believe that there is a God who is still actively involved in today, despite the political scene of the status of our country. There is a God who has a gospel that works. And it's when spirit-filled believers go that we see change. Spirit-filled believers, and we have to go. I think we have to work on the go part. I think we like, especially those of us like myself who grew up Pentecostal, we like to be spirit-filled, and we like to talk about speaking in tongues if you believe in that. Uh, but we really have a hard part going. It's been that way since I was born. I've heard pastors preach thousands of sermons about getting off the pew. I've preached hundreds. Maybe I don't know if I've preached thousands yet, but hundreds at least about getting off the pew. But you know what? How many times do I see that actually happening? Dozens, maybe. You know, I see individuals. We've got awesome people in our church who are doing great things in our community. But overall, in the American church... You know, it comes to that point where these people were so serious about it. I want to say this, that you and I, if we're serious about going all in with Jesus, you and I can preach in Ephesus. You and I can see God move in Ephesus. Isaiah chapter 2, this is what I talked about in the paper. And Isaiah, they asked me, I don't like to write stuff like that, and I really don't like to be in the paper personally. But I gave all I did was a copy to study I'd already done in Isaiah chapter two uh, through chapter four. God gives the declaration of a nation who leaves His word. It's His nation, really. It's talking about His church. If we leave His word, but whether you thinking about the election today, whether Hillary or Trump, I think of it's kind of like this: pick your own switch. That's kind of what I think about it, honestly, because there's no hope in man. There's only hope in God. 
And so uh, if it is a rigged election, it's rigged by God. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I think God's judgment is coming upon America. I really do. And I think it's because we've stopped trusting in God and we've started trusting in government. If you look in Israel's history in Isaiah, uh, Israel was at a loss of true religion. And they began to be more about the world stage and the world scene. They began to follow pagan ideals. They began to see more spiritualism, tarot cards, and, and 1-800 numbers and things like that. Obviously, they didn't have all that back then, but I'm paraphrasing, okay? Uh, spiritualism. They had pride in the security of their international commerce. They had pride in their human achievement of what they could do. They had pride in their military. God actually limited Israel's military. He actually set that in, in, in writing. He said, this is as large as I want your military to be. Israel increased their military without God's approval. And they began to re- rely that we are so powerful we can handle ourselves. They began to trust in their military more than the trusting in God to protect them. Uh, their pride uh, really uh, increased. The Bible says they were making their own gods. Really, they were making themselves God, if that's not what we're doing today. I don't know what is. Uh, they were, um, you could see in Israel's stage in that day that they were worried about self-advancement. There was a, a big push through corporate competition, cutthroat competition, stabbing people in the back. You know, we've seen things like Enron and all these, all these things happen in our communities. Uh, at, uh, we've seen, they saw the rise of teenage rebellion. They saw arrogant, loudmouthed spirits. They saw revolts. What are we seeing today in our streets? Lack of authority, lack of respect, violence in our streets, riots in our streets. Uh, they saw a prideful parade of sin. I'll leave it right there. A prideful parade of sin. That's one commentator's exact phrasing. They had prideful parades of sin in Israel. They had a broad tolerance for different types of religions, thoughts, and philosophies. They had a moral breakdown, though, of the family and of society. And then their leaders forsook good moral conscience to get rich off the back of the poor working man. Now, okay, so that's the Bible. Now, if you want to paint a picture of where we are in that, I think it's pretty clear, very straightforward, where we are in this picture. Okay? And here's what God said He would do in Isaiah chapter, or in the first part of Isaiah. He says He'll make their luxury into poverty. He'll take a breakdown of all the basic economic needs. It takes more money to buy food, water, and milk. Uh, He would say, I would disrupt their stable national and local leadership. It actually says that he would give them childish, inexperienced leaders, if you read it in different translations. And even to a degree that it says they'll go to a rich man and say, hey, well, you are rich and you have a coat. Why don't you lead us? That's in Isaiah. Even to the point where it says all of their men will no longer be qualified for leadership and women in a patriarchal society where women can't vote or lead would step up to lead them in Israel. That would be God's punishment on them. Into the degree that one commentator says in Israel it came to the point that they were forced to choose not the best candidate, but whatever candidate was at hand. This is the Bible, y'all. I'm not reading, you would think I'm reading a news clipping. This is the Bible. Isaiah chapter 2 through 4. It caused a fra- God would cause a fragmented, divided, and disillusioned society. Despair would set in the country. He would cause the disappearance of reliable blue-collar work. The working man would no longer be able to get by. And he would allow the enemy to attack within their borders. And if that didn't work, he would send the whole country into exile which he did. 
So, I'm not going to read the last part of Isaiah. You can read that on your own and see what happens. But here's what I do know what happens. In the middle of all of this stuff, Isaiah prophesies. He says, there's going to be a holy remnant rise up who are going to truly repent and truly worship God. And the Spirit of God is going to bring them through. Even though they may go to exile with the rest of the nation, they're going to people be like Daniel. They're going to be people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah who are going to see God move even in the midst of this. And I'm going to bring them out. And through them, I'll bring Jesus Christ into the world. That's what God promised Isaiah. And you see that in Isaiah 53. He promises a Messiah. That's why we read these great... Uh, Isaiah has the greatest prophecies of Jesus. So what I get out of that is that there, even in... in a, you know, America is not the hope of the world. The church is. And no matter what happens to America, God has a holy remnant who will rise up. And He says, if we don't, the rocks will cry out. And there will be a holy remnant rise up that will set the, say, the stage for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like it happened in Israel, there was a Daniel and Ezekiel and a Jeremiah and people like Paul who are ready to say, even if the world turns out to look like Ephesus, even if all of the people around us are pagan and idolatry, if the world is such filth of immorality, we will declare the glory of God no matter the cost, no matter the place, and in the power of the Holy Spirit we'll overcome. That's the gospel. If you want to have a political vote this season, vote Jesus. Let Him be all in. Because just like these 12 disciples, we have to get all in to be ready for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, I don't, it doesn't matter who wins. We're still going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're still going to see God move in revival. And while the world, like the people in Ephesus, they were saying, Great is our God, Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're chanting this in this, uh, the theater. The world today is chanting, you know, great is our party, great is our nation. Or some of them are even saying, you go on Facebook, great is my beer, great is my hunting, great is my uh, lust, my pornography, my, my hot rides, my, my car magazines, great is my vanity, my Aeropostale, my Hollister, my makeup, my, my Miley Cyrus, or great are all, we're fanning all these things. We're liking all these things. All these people have followers. And that's what the world is doing. They're saying, great is this. Great is that. Great is this. But what if the church just rose up and said, great is Jesus. Great is Jesus. I want us at Sanctuary Family Worship Center to be the church. That we'd be kingdom first. That we really get serious about Christianity. If America... Is not the hope of the world, the church is. But if America is trying to wear the church t-shirt, you can be sure judgment will follow. Because you can expect the discipline of God. And it doesn't matter who the president is. And I think about this way. Who has a greater impact on our youth today? Is it the future president of the United States or that Sunday school teacher? Whew. I remember my Sunday school teachers. I remember my youth pastors. I remember those people that pulled me aside and talked to me about what is God, who is God, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I remember those people who pulled me aside, took me out for coffee in college and said, hey, I think God's got something for you. I'm praying for you. Why don't you get involved in this Bible study I'm in? Those people made far more impact in my life than Ronald Reagan or George Bush or Bill Clinton. So you and I... While we can be worried, and it should, there's, there's reason to worry about the future of our country. Vote your morals. Vote righteous. If you can see a righteous person on the candidate, yeah, by all means, vote that. 
Vote as best as the Lord leads you to vote. That's all I can tell you. But what I can tell you is that you can make such a difference in the life of one of our young people if you just pull them aside and pour Jesus into them. It will affect change like none other when the power of God is poured on our youth, is poured on our kids, is poured on this next generation. It's not the president. It's the Sunday school teacher. It's the spirit-filled, prophesying, preaching mom and dad that have the greatest impact on the next generation. Great is Jesus. Never underestimate what God can do through one little church in a world-famous city. So what can He do in little old Gina, Louisiana? God is holy. Sin is serious. I want to be God's holy remnant. I want to be like Paul and those people in Ephesus that said, Great is Jesus. Great is Jesus. They lack something at first. I'm going to leave you with this, and then we're going to go to a time of prayer real quick. Like the Ephesian disciples, they lack something. And I think a lot of us, maybe not here tonight, but a lot of our people in our churches are lacking something. He had to ask them, are you really saved? Have you been baptized in water? And have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Did you go all the way? Did you go deeper? And I have a quote I wanted you to, wanted to read you tonight before I close in prayer. Spurgeon, he talked, said this, he says, God always wants us to go deeper. And we tend to sip where we could drink deeply. And we drink deeply where we could wade in. And we wade in where we could plunge in and swim. Most of us need to encourage one another to go deeper and further into the things of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're ankle deep today, go knee deep. If you're knee deep today, go waist deep. If you're waist deep today, head first in. If you're head first in, just keep on swimming deeper. That's what we're looking for today, is that people say, this is coming? I know what's coming to our nation. But I know what God did in Ephesus. I know what He did for Daniel in the lion's den. I know what He did for Jeremiah in the pit. I know what God has done in nations like this before. And He can do it again. And so I want to see God move on our church to be kingdom-minded, to be filled with His Spirit, to even if we have to go into exile with this country, to preach the gospel no matter the circumstance, no matter the consequence, and to be expecting God to move in the miraculous and the curious, and the unusual. And that we could say, what if God said do something crazy like get a storefront and preach every day at 2 o'clock? That worked for their culture. It may not be what God calls us for our culture, but there may be something unusual that is going to break through the culture of this city, this town, this parish, this, this region. There may be something unusual that a sovereign move of God happens and we say whatever their Kleenex thing was might be something different for us. And the way they had to preach and strategize and get the gospel out may be different. We say, God, we are willing to be on fire, all in, go head first deep for you. Amen? Amen. 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 Tonight I want to pray for a few things. We've got...